And if you want to throw your credibility away at a moment's notice, don't prepare at all. Don't test your equipment and just walk in and drop your stuff down and, and say, where do I plug in? Hello, and welcome to the ninth episode of First Chair, the e-discovery education podcast from Exact Data Discovery. I'm XTD's Director of Education and your host for this podcast, Matthew Verga. Each episode on First Chair, we invite guest experts to sit down with me for 20 to 30 minute conversations about a single important e-discovery topic. From technology developments to legal developments to best practices and beyond, First Chair exposes you to experienced legal and technical practitioners and their expert insights into our continually evolving industry. Just as the transition from primarily paper sources to primarily electronic ones has complicated preservation, collection, review, and production, so too has it complicated the eventual presentation of evidence at trial. Today's litigants must juggle paper, near-paper, native, and near-native materials using computers, projectors, displays, and tablets, plus presentation software, automated litigation support systems, and other tools, not to mention the added challenges with authentication. To help us learn more about these challenges and how best to meet them, our guest this episode is Shannon Bales, litigation support at Munger Tolls and Olson in Los Angeles. Shannon is highly involved with a number of education and standards efforts within the litigation lifecycle and practice management. He is a California Lawyers Association Law Practice Management and Technology Section Executive Committee member, a UN War Crimes Advisor on Litigation Support Technology and Investigations, and did a presentation at the White House with ASEDS. He is also an ACEDS and EDRM board member, an adjunct professor at UCLA on trial technology and fact analysis tools, and the author of the Trial Presentation Companion, as well as articles for ILTA, ACEDS, NITA, EDRM, and Harvard. Welcome, Shannon, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm appreciative to be on your podcast today. You sound like a very busy guy, Shannon. Could you tell us some about those groups that you're taking time away from to speak with us today? Oh, I'd love to. Um, I'm involved with a number of groups involved with standardization and education because I think it's important that we develop some rules and standards when it comes to the different phases of the EDRM. Uh, my particular specialization is uh, trial presentation and fact analysis tools, and I dabble in some of the other phases as well. Um, in addition, uh, I am uh, undertaking a number of efforts to spread education amongst uh, universities within paralegal and lawyer programs, and as well as uh, education efforts uh, with established paralegals and new paralegals and lawyers that are out there in the industry already working uh, so that we can raise the level of service and support and bring some efficiencies to our business and to our trial and opportunities for people that are trying to move forward in their careers. That all sounds terrific and, and much needed. Uh, what was it like getting to do education all the way at the level of the White House? How did you end up doing that? Uh, I, like I said, I'm involved with a number of universities and speak fairly often. And um, I think it's pretty well known within some of the groups I'm involved with that I'm interested in, in, in helping with their education efforts. And along came an opportunity uh, to go be part of a team speaking at the White House uh, with the executive branch. Uh, the president wasn't there, but um, 
uh, members of his office were there. They have some unique issues within the White House, and sure. it was a career high. I really uh, loved being there. I, I, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that was quite a memorable experience. I've I've only been on the tour uh, back when they used to still do the tour. <laughs> well, as you can imagine, uh, uh, the White House is under a mandate. There, there's a law that says that every single communication, every single email, every single file must be saved and stored. And uh, they're just exploding under the press requests. Um, they have uh, an office there that deals with. Um, all the inquiries from the public and the um, the press corps, and um, they are just exploding under um, all of the requests, as you can imagine, that are happening. And so it was really interesting to see their unique problems and be part of the solution. I can imagine. Uh, we, we noted in the introduction that uh, you wrote a book on our subject for today. How did you come to write a book about it? Uh, I was goaded into it by my wife and father. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I was kind of, you know, as a, someone that does a lot of trials, I see a lot of people doing really bad things with technology at trial. And it really holds back the implementation of technology at trial for everybody when there's a group of people. I'd like to say it's a small group of people, but it's actually a, a fairly large group of people that go to trial with technology poorly. And what I mean by that is that, um, I mean, it's just poor performance with people that could, attorneys and legal teams that really could up their game substantially if they just took the technology a little bit more seriously. Um, one of the challenges I had was navigating the bureaucracies of the law firm, law firm environment and trying to get the right equipment. The right equipment for trial is typically not standard lawyer fare. Uh, it might be a, a gaming laptop of some kind that has a really big video card and lots of memory and lots of storage space. And uh, trying to get that through an IT bureaucracy can be very difficult. You know, I often be asked, what, um, what can I point to to show that this is what other people in the industry are using? And that's kind of what the genesis of the book was, bad performance by lawyers at trial and an inability to have a legitimate academic source for um, what what the standards should be internally for law firms. That's a good point for us to transition into our topic for today. So just what sorts of technology pressures are legal teams under at trial today? Well, we're seeing teams come in with massive amounts of video, um, massive amounts of diverse data ranging from paper to ESI. and there is not a lot of workflow devoted to the process that comes between production and the start of presentation. So there's a lot of bad handoffs. Um, there's a lot of bad handoffs of data. Uh, there's a lot of uh, questions and problems with legal teams on what to do with that separate exhibit data. And so getting teams organized and their data in another usable format um, is challenging. So for example, you know, we run a production to create exhibits. Uh, are people gonna take those exhibits and then load them back up into a database that they can utilize? Um, or are they gonna put it in a folder and, and carry it around on a um, thumb drive? What are they gonna do to be able to access their important information 
And a lot of teams are making bad trade-offs when it comes to being able to present that data at trial because they can't access it and they don't know where it is and they don't know what they have. Uh, is uh, is that being compounded by uh, shifts in uh, jury and judge expectations? I, I've I've heard folks complain about uh, what they refer to as the CSI effect. Well, I would say uh, the CSI effect and the David and Goliath effect. So, a, a couple of years ago, and then we're still somewhat concerned about it. The expectation and the analysis really was, you know, if it was a big firm going up against a small firm, they were concerned about. Um, they were concerned about appearing that uh, that they were too big, that, that it was this David and Goliath situation. Well, first of all, the, the general public now knows that technology is is readily accessible. They, they don't really buy the argument anymore when they see opposing counsel show up for a smaller team and they're driving a Beamer or something like that. And they have a smartphone, they have a tablet and they have a, a laptop. Why aren't they presenting technology at trial? So, Jurors really are thinking that teams that aren't using technology are wasting their time. And, and there's a Cornell study that actually um, supports that idea. Um, there's an article called, I think it's called What Juries Really Think. And it was a study of 500 jurors um, in the around 2015 to 2017, I want to say, about uh, juror attitudes coming to uh, in regards to uh, trial technology well, trial presentation and what they did right and what they did wrong and it's by judge amy st eve and gretchen scavo um, it's a great article uh, what jurors really want to see is um, organization and efficiency at trial and they want to see you have a little bit of style when you present it and I'll tell you, a lot of law firms and a lot of attorneys aren't investing into the attorney into the trial technology, the time necessary, so that they appear smooth, and that they have workflows internally to help that help support their trial goals. In addition to uh, shifts in uh, audience expectations, have shifts in tool sets also complicated the matter? Is the transition from local tools to cloud-based tools made things more complicated? It has, uh, believe it or not, uh, you know, cloud-based tools, of course, are a necessary component of your trial support efforts. But let's take, for example, you go to trial in some remote area, and maybe they don't have the best bandwidth. So teams need to have workflows surrounding um, how they're going to utilize their cloud-based tools um, and what is their local data strategy. They need to be able to have a set of that data with them on a secure storage type of some kind so they can print at volume and speed and transfer files around um, with ease. Um, a lot of teams get stuck when they're only beholden to their cloud-based service and all of a sudden they realize that there's limits in transferring files with their email systems, they run into problems with bandwidth and getting files downloaded, maybe there's some other security issues that keep them from getting the getting two files. And so um, uh, what you really need as, when you're supporting a remote trial is the ability not only to access data in the cloud and have your cloud-based you know, system out there to search and, and separate um, your exhibit database potentially from your bigger document review database, but incorporate both into your case strategy, um, and then also have a set of those exhibits locally 
so that you can print at speed and get things done. Because you're not gonna be able to present, uh, print 100 or 200 documents via uh, relativity in a couple of hours like you could if you had a local printer at trial site and hit the print button from a secure, uh, safe storage site. What are some of the other ways that teams are, are shooting themselves in the feet these days? Well, I got to tell you, we see a lot of a lot of teams just not take the technology part of this seriously. So um, one way is not complying with a court's trial management order. The trial management order are the rules that set the standards for the case. And so that might speak to things like when exhibits should be um, exchanged and the format for the exchange and how those exhibits might be branded. And so we see a lot of gamesmanship when it comes to handling those types of files. And maybe, maybe they don't brand them. Maybe they name them incorrectly. Uh, you know, they do all these things. And they thought, I think in the past, um, you know, you might have gotten away with that kind of thing. But increasingly, what we're seeing is teams reject bad work product. And when you reject that bad work product, teams are in for a midnight shock hey, I'm going to have to go back and name and brand these documents correctly. Um, I can't zip up 20 um, video clips and call it all one exhibit number. Um, and uh, that bad work product really is an efficiency stopper for courts. So where courts might not have been game to get involved in the past, they might be, in, might be more willing, if you give them the efficiency argument, that we're redoing all of that person, all that other team's work, and they're doing it nefariously, possibly, um, to um, that, 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 that I think the court would agree with teams on doing. It. So, so how are courts responding to teams that aren't prepared or that have sort of engaged in deliberately shoddy conduct in this area? Well, I think teams are being increasingly held accountable for bad work product. Um, the whole idea behind an exhibit number is so that we have a common reference point uh, to referring to a document or video clip in the courtroom. Uh, everyone can refer to exhibit 23, page five. And I'll give you the example of a legal team that hasn't gone through the workflow of changing old production numbers or old Bates numbers on the face of a document to the exhibit numbers. It creates confusion for everyone. And one way you can respond to a team that has not made those changes is to say, you know, excuse me, your honor, for the record, can you tell me what exhibit number that is that the that council is referring to? And for teams that aren't organized, that haven't done their groundwork, that haven't branded their exhibits, um, this is akin to dropping a, a bomb in the middle of their, you know, their case, because all of a sudden someone's furiously looking through pages of Excel spreadsheets, trying to find the correlation chart if they've created the correlation chart. And you can imagine what that does to the flow of a legal team that doesn't have it together. So uh, in terms of accountability, we're seeing uh, some courts develop evidence presentation obligations where uh, these are rules for um, the level of technical ability the attorney should have when uh, trying to utilize technology at trial. Um, they say things, ridiculous things like, uh, the rules say these just absolutely crazy things like, uh, attorneys should know 
how to use their own computer. You know, what attorneys, <laughs> what attorneys are walking into court and they don't know how to use their own computer. They've never tested the equipment in advance. And if you want to throw your credibility away at a moment's notice, don't prepare at all. Don't test your equipment and just walk in and drop your stuff down and, and say, where do I plug in? Um, teams that are taking this seriously are sending a technical person a hot seat, maybe a hot seat and a paralegal or an attorney out to the trial site, getting to know the, the lay of the land in advance, what the likes and dislikes of the court are, what the measurements of the courtroom are so appropriate equipment can be um, brought in, typically rented, um, and so that they can create the best presentation environment possible. Um, in addition, you're becoming the credible one. So what I see a lot of the times are teams that don't or ignore these, these um, obligations is that the court just defers to the person, to the team that, that came in and took their obligation seriously. Sure, sure. And uh, what is the, the role in this dance uh, of service providers uh, at trial? Well, service providers fill a valuable role. Um, well, one other way that teams shoot themselves in the foot is that they kind of um, break off from all levels of support from their own firm and their service provider that they've worked with for years. And they, they get treated like they're an island, like a leper colony out there somewhere um, when they're at some remote trial site. And all of a sudden, no one's able to support them because they haven't, they haven't uh, created workflow and process around how their um, service provider could help them out. And the legal teams uh, are often even um, isolated from their own firms so that firms have not created standards around um, how their help desk can prioritize a, a person or team at trial how um, a help desk person might be able to uh, bring equipment if the equipment broke to a trial site. So I've seen trial teams that can't get a laptop whose major home office is uh, you know 20 minutes away because the help wow. desk person isn't allowed to leave the site. You know, uh, Likewise, I've seen trial teams um, take all their exhibits out of their uh, a cloud-based system, you know, typically relativity, and uh, put it on a hard drive. So then they, uh, and they take that hard drive to trial. And now no one has the ability to, um, you know, adequately uh, search through massive amounts of exhibits. They need to keep that relationship with their vendor so they can uh, search and, and, and maybe create an exhibit database, exhibit-only database that tracks the exhibits being used at trial. And um, not only that, when you, when you take all your exhibits out of their production database, you end up losing a lot of context. And you're taking it a step further because um, if you had a great relationship with your vendor who was supporting you all along and you, you all of a sudden take that support structure out of the picture, um, you're taking a lot of the, your, your efficiency out of the picture and case knowledge out of the picture. So um, incorporating your vendor um, into the picture is important and getting your, um, uh, making sure your firm has standards and procedures for dealing with problems that occur off-site, off-campus is important. 
And just to sort of round out our overview of the challenges and pressures associated with uh, presentation at trial sites, what are some of the current trends uh, you've seen in, in support at remote trial sites? Well, support teams, well, there's two, two things. Um, the use of technology at trial is, is now pervading even the smallest of cases. Uh, you know, we won't bring the, the giant support team in to su support a small case, but technology is definitely now involved in even, you know, uh, small hearings and, and uh, 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 smaller cases that, that you may not have utilized uh, or taken the time to prep a bunch of exhibits and video clips for. Um, but the real trend here is twofold. Um, larger support teams for use at trial with spe specialization involved. So what I mean by that is you can't take one hot seat person and have them supporting 20 or 30 people at trial, um, their graphics, their um, presentation the next day, um, database support and all of that kind of thing. Um, so what we do see is some specialization. We see the hot seat that goes to court. We, we, we call it second chair. It's a person that might take care of overnight data needs because you need your hot seat person to be fresh and able to hear um, exhibit numbers being called out and not falling asleep in court. <laughs> um, uh, you might have a graphics specialist who is uh, doing nothing but graphics. And I'd highly encourage teams to um, uh, get their graphics people involved as early as possible. Uh, one mistake that we see quite often at trial is that, um, you know, they might spend weeks getting their opening statement, if you're lucky, uh, 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 opening statement graphics prepared, but then they wait for a day or two before closing to um, work 48 hours straight to get the graphics ready for closing. What you really need to do is establish at the beginning of your trial who's going to start getting blurbs and, and great points in for closing starting at the very beginning. Um, uh, so, and then maybe you have someone who just maintains the database and the different exhibits that are coming in and that kind of thing. Um, so a gatekeeper of some kind for data. Um, what happens to a lot of trial teams is that they um, th they forget that there, there needs to be an order to things at trial or things get missed. And when things get missed, people get embarrassed in the courtroom and nobody wants to get embarrassed in the courtroom. Um, and what I mean by that is maybe an exhibit comes in at midnight, it goes to some associate, the associate works all night on the exhibit, incorporating it into um, outlines and questioning, but no one ever gives the exhibit over to the um, hot seat or the second chair so it doesn't make it into the system and it doesn't get up on screen and everyone looks really bad in court when that, when that happens. So um, having a workflow, um, I, I like to call it a gatekeeper of a person that all the data goes to and that it's conformed, branded, um, all the things that the trial management order asks us to do to it are, are occurring and that it's in the system and then it's ready to go the next day um, along with project documentation and project management so that we know what we have. 
So let's uh, let's take a slightly deeper dive into some of the specific areas of difficulty that practitioners should be aware of so that they can look out for this stuff and get help in advance. Um, you, you talked a little bit just there about uh, uh, steps in the creation of exhibits and the organization of materials during trial. Just how much more complicated has the process of creating exhibits become since we transition from paper exhibits to ESI exhibits? Well, in some ways, it's um... It's a lot easier, right? It's even it's even become easier in the last, uh, I would say, three or four years, as uh, the primary exchange medium has become Adobe PDF files, right? Um, in the past, you might have gotten an image load file, uh, uh, you know, that you would load. That's uh, a, a little more complicated for, um, but uh, PDFs themselves have become the the standard, the the format of choice. Now the problem with that, that ease of using a PDF is that there's lurking danger in those PDFs in that uh, the file size of them can really get out of hand with some exhibits. Right. I mean, if you had, if you had a 10,000 page, you know, mortgage document of some kind or banking document and someone wrapped it all up in a half gigabyte or gigabyte, um, file, um, think how long, if you were just to click on that, it would take to open <laughs> and present. And it's no different at trial, right? There's no magic in the trial presentation software that makes a gigabyte file open in less than, you know, even if you have a super hot machine, uh, you know, 10 or 15 seconds, or maybe even a minute, you know, uh, and that's a lifetime in the courtroom. Yeah, so a lot uh, of silence to fill. Right. And and when you have a PDF file that's like that, and you might have a lot of them, you need to make technical decisions about how to handle them. Maybe you split them up. Maybe you, maybe you go back and make them all TIFF files, uh, individual TIFF files with a load file. Um, but you know, with this bigger volume uh, comes equipment. The uh, equipment issues become uh, more pronounced. Um, you know, a lot of people don't have any kind of investment in terms of having equipment they're going to actually put up an exhibit like that quickly and what i mean by that is a kind of a gaming rig that has lots of video ram and uh, lots of ram so it can it can do things like that um, uh, in addition um, there's all the branding requirements people simply uh, uh, you know often just do not read what their obligations are under those orders and i'd encourage anyone that is I, i'd encourage any legal team listening out there that they should have their technical people review that trial management order uh, together with the legal team to see how you can make it a little bit more specific. Um, one thing I saw, one kind of dirty pool thing that I saw once was, um, you know, we had this, there's a standard federal um, kind of trial management order that deals with, um, that deals with uh, exhibit exchange. And it lists all these possible formats that you might wanna use at trial. And in that, where I learned my lesson on this is they just started delivering in every, every single format that was mentioned there. Um, <laughs> the, you know, like one time it was TIFF files, another time it was PDF, another time it was multi-page TIFF, another time it was, I mean, it was just everything that was mentioned there. And they, and they, and they said, hey, we just have to div deliver you one time, a, we just have to deliver you a load file. It doesn't have to be a, a correct load file, you know? And so, um, you know, we were just basically spending hours every single day fixing their um, work. And I think at some point we got 
tired of it and the and the attorney said hey you're spending more time supporting them than us how about if we reject this and see what happens and um we did and it worked out really well for us and again threw a bomb back at the other team um to do their own work um sure what about uh, what about numbering and labeling? How, how are folks handling issues uh, related to sort of document versus page numbering and related to how to sort of label and manage exhibits that maybe only exist electronically? You know, uh, a lot of this comes down to personal preference. And where a lot of legal teams make a mistake here is that they go too complicated. You know, they want it to say page three of 50 or page you know, you know, something along those lines or to have some um, other complicated naming scheme that is um, being branded on the on, on each page of the document. Sometimes they want some on the top right and others on the bottom left. I mean, it's just way too complicated. And what they need to do is really think of um, workflow and being able to get these exhibits out the door. Um, so I personally prefer a, a four digit um, exhibit number um, and a four-digit page number. It's kind of my standard. I go bigger or smaller depending on on the case data analysis. But um, that allows me to um, quickly zoom in on what page that they're talking about. In addition, um, one opportunity for lawyers uh, to be the good guy is to give a tutorial on what an exhibit is, how the exhibit should be numbered, you know, and explain in their particular case about the exhibit numbering system. And you, you, you do, you come across as the, as the good guy or good gal on that. And uh, it, it really does give you some credibility up front at the beginning, especially if the other side hasn't numbered their stuff or is using the wrong number. All of a sudden you put a question in the mind of the jurors, it's like, Hey, this guy's this this person is telling me um, exactly what I need to know to find the information that this case all about is all about. Who's the honest party and who's trying to hide the ball when this other person is up? They don't even have their exhibit numbers on their documents, and they're not referring to the exhibit number. The court said they're supposed to refer to the exhibit number. I, I don't get it. What's going on here? And so it really does make um, the other side look. Um, bad. <laughs> <for lack of laughs> no, that's, that's uh, an, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. Um, and a good guy. You become the good guy. So what about uh, authentication of exhibits uh, when you're dealing with ESI exhibits versus more traditional ones? How has that become uh, complicated, if at all? You know, I don't know. You know, I think by the time this, this reaches trial, you know, most authenticate, a lot of authentication issues have already been resolved. But there is one area for trial presentation that I like to um, talk about, and that I, I call it document authenticity. It's, it's separated from the legal concept of authentication where you're trying to show uh, 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 the provenance of a, of a document. Uh, to me, document authenticity means it's, it's the document as it was collected. And so where vendors and legal teams can make a potentially big error is that they think that, hey, I'm just gonna go through and straighten all of these documents, straighten all the PDFs. I'm gonna darken or lighten them. I'm gonna make some changes to these documents um, to uh, help them present better at trial. And 
what you potentially open yourself up to is an accusation that you've tampered with the documents when you do that. And it may not be the intent, but I'll tell you, oftentimes it's the intent. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you come through and you have a signature. I mean, my, my best example of that is someone who um, extremely darkened a, um, a contract signature. And um, by darkening it, it looked like the pen had been really pushed into the paper and that it was, uh, uh, you know, um, and, and what the opposing counsel said was, look at that angry signature. <laughs> look at that angry signature. And I was sitting there thinking like, that's not an angry signature. And we <laughs> pulled up the, we pulled up the, you know, our version of it that, you know, wasn't darkened and enhanced and all of that. And, um, and it really, I think, puts a question in the mind of, of decision makers like the judge and jury when they see something like that. Um, so I'd be very careful in any kind of improvements to the document. Um, and, and in addition, when it's too light and too, you know, garbled and all of that, that gives a, a skilled attorney additional time to perhaps explain what is a bad document away to, um, to a judge and jury. I, I mean, we had one that had the F word on it. Okay. It had the, uh, the, the attorney referred to it as filleted instead of the real <laughs> F word. Right? Um, but um, a document like that, that would normally be so bad for you and that you would be expected to get, you know, mention it and move on. Um, having the extra time to kind of finesse the document in and improve it using trial presentation software gave um, our attorney the time to explain the use of filleted uh, to the judge and jury. And it was extremely powerful. And had we improved it, had we darkened it and done all that other thing, it would have perhaps changed the character of the document and not given them the time to actually um, explain it away. That concludes part one of our interview with Shannon Bales on trial presentation of ESI. Thank you once again to him for taking time out of his busy schedule to share those insights with us. And thank you to all of you for joining us for another episode of First Chair. Part two of our interview with Shannon will be posted as our next episode. If you'd like further information about trial presentation and e-discovery, or other topics, please check out our libraries of free articles, practice guides, white papers, and webinars in the Learn section of our website at exactdatadiscovery.com. That's exact, X-A-C-T. X-T-D, because you need to know.